So I think happiness is the goal. And whatever that means for you as far as working longer or shorter hours, you know, you got to figure that out for yourself. Welcome, closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season three on profit. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and every week I interview world class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100 units or 1,000, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Steve Wealthy, the owner of Good Life Property Management, which is based in sunny San Diego. After selling his share in another property management firm in 2013, Steve started Good Life with the goal of providing the highest level of customer service and experience in the industry. Pretty lofty goal. We're going to talk about what he does to actually lean into that. We're going to talk about Steve's journey and really his overall goal, overarching goal for the business, how the business is set up and designed to serve him and his goals while still driving incredible results for his customer. I have known Steve for quite a few years now. I like this guy. I think he's a visionary. And from a mindset perspective, we're very much on the same frequency. If you enjoy this episode, please head on over to iTunes and leave us an honest review. More reviews means better guests, which means a better podcast. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Jordan, what's up, man? All right, bro. I have been waiting to have you on the podcast. I waited long enough for you to actually start your own podcast. So congrats right out of the gate. For those who have not seen it, go check out the Good Life Property Management Podcast on iTunes. It's worth checking out. Thank you. So background story. Every single guest, same story. Nobody at age five said, I want to be a property manager for you. How did you fall into property management, Steve? All right. So my story starts like many in real estate sales, 2006. Had fun, cashed some big commission checks, things going well, 2007, like a lot of people, things started to change. So I quickly burned through all my money and was young and dumb. And so I found myself at about age 26 answering an ad to be a personal assistant for a French entrepreneur in Carlsbad. He actually taught me a lot about real estate and he owned rental properties. And the funny thing is he wanted someone to manage his managers. So... (laughs) I kind of was able to use my real estate license and also go pick up his laundry and take his dogs out and things like that. And I swallowed my pride and uh, did that and actually saw what the managers were doing. And I thought, hey, I can do a lot better job than this. I do want to rewind. I remember thinking back to that time. I had been working for maybe three, four, five years and I was starting to doubt myself. I was like, if I could just make 50 grand a year, like I'm, I'm, I'm lowering my expectations. Like this thing is hard. If I could just make like a decent living, I would just be so happy. And the reason I bring that up is I think overnight success, and I'm not still where I want to be, obviously, but I think it takes about 10 years, right? To be an overnight <laughs> success. Absolutely. <laughs> and so for anyone that's younger or maybe starting out, I would tell you to, stay in the game and just realize and have patience that it's a much longer road than you think because 
thinking back to that, I would have liked to hear that. And then I was able to kind of get into property management. I met a a friend in college who took me to lunch and was like, hey, we should start doing property management. I was like, hey, I'm actually working for this guy and he's doing property management. It's kind of serendipitous. So we started a company together and uh, grew it for about five years in San Diego, had a great time. And then, uh, you know, we kind of had our different ideas of how we wanted to run the business moving forward and what we wanted to do. And so we kind of decided to go our separate ways at the end of 2012, middle of 2012, and then went through that whole battle, which was difficult. We're all, we're friends now, but you know, we had to go through mediation and it was uh, a trying time in my life, but uh, ended up coming up with a good life and started that in April, 2013 and been having a ball ever since. Well, let's wade into what you kind of glossed over at the end there, partnerships, man, the P word, it can be a source of great success, inspiration, pain. It's sticky on the other side of a meaningful partnership that lasted for a fair bit of time, what advice would you have and what different perspective do you have about partnerships now? Would you ever do one again? And if so, under what parameters? I would do one again, as long as it wasn't out of convenience, like, oh, you know, you happen to be good at this and I'm good at this. They've got to really bring something, some capability to the table that, you know, is not just like, uh, more than just convenient that they happen to like be in your market and you get along. Two is uh, I would plan the divorce at the beginning mm. and say, <laughs> and say, you know, if things go, yeah, if things go badly, if, well, not even if things go badly, like if one day I, I wake up and I just don't want to be in the business anymore, or you wake up and don't want to be in the business, you know, so I'd set that, that partnership agreement up very clearly up front before, you know, it's easy to do it up front rather than in the end. And then I'd also set expectations about, see, I think one of the things I was actually naive about in the past was number of hours working was very important to me. I hadn't quite understood the concept of results, I guess, or I would tie each partner's measurement of success to results rather than hours because my partner at the time was actually a little more smarter than I was because I was working like all the time and she wasn't working that much. And I was like, that's the inequality and, uh, you know, we could have maybe just said, Hey, you need to accomplish these things and you can work as little or as much as you want. And I'll accomplish these things and you work as little or as much as you want. So that's a couple pieces of advice I'd probably give doing it if I did it again. I like that, especially the part about figuring out the divorce or the, the separation strategy on the front side. That's really foundational to any operating agreement. And my experience in partnerships, and I've been through quite a few partnerships at this point, has been that even if you do really invest a lot of time in the operating agreement at the outset, it, it requires being revisited, right? After about four or five years, that operating agreement likely is less flexible in light of the new circumstances of what could take place in a five-year Period. So that's some good advice. I like that. Let's transition to talking about where the business is at now. Give me the rough parameters of where a good life is at in terms of unit count, staff, mix of properties, etc. Yeah, happy to do it. So we're currently at 550 homes roughly. And we have nine employees and three virtual assistants. Now how we're set up is I handle the visionary role company direction. I have to keep people motivated and I bring ideas to the table and give them to my team to execute them. Under me, I have an operations manager who oversees the operations and basically is in charge of implementing a lot of the things that I bring to the table. And then we have a business development manager 
that was one of the best changes that I ever made. And it actually happened by accident. I went on my honeymoon last year and said, all right, this is your chance. This guy had wanted this, this job on my team. I came back. I'm like, how'd you do? He's like, oh, I got 20 contracts. I'm like, all right. You're right. <laughs> so I'm like, I guess I'm not that good well, at it. Was it a six-month honeymoon? So, I mean, that, that, how long was the honeymoon? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I was gone for... <laughs> That's funny. I was gone for like a week and a half, but uh, I let him do the full month. Like when I got back, I was like doing other stuff. So I let him like run the month. So it was a month. <laughs> so business development, I just recently hired my first marketing person. Best you know thing I've done in a long time after BDM because a long time I'd think, well, what am I going to have this marketing person do? That's my job. But then once you actually think about it and list the tasks, there's a lot of stuff you can have a marketing person do. And then uh, we have portfolio property managers. So they handle the the homes. I'm hoping they can handle up to about 300 homes. Right now, they ha- handle anywhere between 130 to 220 each. I have three of them. And then we have a maintenance person who handles all the dispatching of the maintenance. And then the VAs handle all of the tenant communication. So we're actually transitioning them to handle all the maintenance dispatch, all the tenant communication, and so the maintenance dispatcher guy is going to actually transition into more of like a management, mid-level management role where he's kind of in charge of all of that. And then we have a, someone that goes out and does all the inspections and handles some of the showings, property associate. And I think that's, I think that's everybody. So uh, we have an accountability chart. So everyone has a role that they own on the chart. Now, just because you own the role doesn't mean you're in charge of doing the role. It means you're in charge of the, re- the outcome. So that was a big change for us. And like, for instance, at my company, like I'm in charge, but I'm not in control. So just because it's your role doesn't mean you have to actually do it, but you're responsible for that. So that's a little bit about what we look like today. We have a couple people working remotely from home that have been with us a while and we kind of trust them to work from home and do that type of stuff. We, we work with a lot of younger people and I know there's a lot of talk about millennials, but I've kind of come to this realization lately is like, a lot of us are trying to jam like a square peg in a round hole with how we set up our businesses. And we're like, these damn millennials, <laughs> you know, they're, they, you know, all they want to do is take time off and they, you know, want flexible work hours. And it's like, yeah, it's just like different breed of person. You know what I mean? And it's like, and so I'm kind of trying to gear my business towards that rather than swim upstream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I think about kind of that type cast of millennials or that stereotype off the cuff, what I think of is the, what might be called the um, Puritan work ethic, right? The idea of just like grind it out, work really hard. For whatever reason, millennials seem to find less meaning or validation in that as like its own form of fulfillment. I think everybody, what's universal with all humans is that we're seeking out meaning, purpose, self-actualization, et cetera. And some people are capable of getting that through just working raw hours, you know, 80 hours a week. I'm a champion because I slept in the office, et cetera. And some people don't. I don't know that there's necessarily uh, a right and wrong there. I think if anything, cracking that nut with millennials is more about thinking through motivation and provide and, and really being invested in actually proactively providing purpose and meaning in the work as, a, as opposed to just assuming that that should naturally come from offering somebody a paycheck. I think you nailed it. I think, and it's funny because I think people, society as a whole are actually becoming more self-actualizing. And I think I'm technically maybe right on the cusp of being a millennial myself, but I, I think I see it as they're actually wanting to have a great life and live 
which is actually <laughs> the point of life at the end of the day. Not so much just to like grind your eyeballs out to achieve something that's never going to make you happy. So um, to each his own, but it's kind of a cool progression. I'm with you, man. So I do want to rewind to kind of talk about some of the history of how we met, circumstances, et cetera. You've been a lead civil customer for a long time, seeing each other at conferences. We got to know each other better at the mastermind retreat we did in Puerto Vallarta with a group of entrepreneurs. And that was... What was that? It was that was last year? Right? It was 2017. Yeah, man, it feels like I was thinking about that. It's crazy. It feels like two, three. Years yeah, ago. It totally. It absolutely does. Um, but we want to do have a really tight, focused couple of days with some high level entrepreneurs. Went out there with Alex Sosnenko, Greg Crabtree, myself, Danny Craig was out there, and then I'm going to say it was four property management companies. You were one of those entrepreneurs. I feel like that in my life and in the life of the other folks that were there, that was kind of a a catalyzing moment. At least let me just speak for myself. For me, it put me in a position and set me off on the journey of getting a lot more serious and a lot more invested in the ultimate financial outcomes of my clients. I grew up in the growth side of this business, been doing that for a decade, talking about sales and marketing. It's interesting. It's sexy. But at the end of the day, that does not adopting that narrative and executing on that does not necessarily guarantee success in the business. Diving into the numbers, looking at bottom line profit has been eye-opening for me. I'm curious for you, what was your experience like after that? How did that experience kind of frame or shape any of the way that you looked at the business after the fact? That mastermind retreat really changed my business and it's no BS. It really changed my life. Like I commend you, you and Alex, I have always admired because you actually think of things and you do them and it's quite refreshing. You go out on a limb and you make yourself vulnerable and charging four grand or whatever I paid to go on that trip, you know, you have a lot, you got to deliver on those things. And so that ended up being the best money I've ever spent because I learned the actual numbers of my business through Greg Crabtree and your help and Danny. And I realized that I wasn't going to be able to achieve my goals if I stayed doing business the way I was doing them. I had always operated on feel. I'm not a numbers guy, so I'm naturally adverse to the numbers. But it just opened my eyes because we could do projections. We saw, you know, what am I making per unit? How does this compare with other people? And so it was like kind of uh, scary to learn that, but it really changed how we do business. And I look at it, I think we were talking, I think I was, I think might've even showed you this, but like since that trip, like our rent roll went like straight, like 90 degree straight line, our profitability, same way. And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence. So I appreciate you guys doing that because it really changed everything for me. Yeah. I mean, I like the way that you framed it. We really did kind of jump off a cliff and figure out how to make a parachute or an airplane on the way down. And I think, you know, there are some, there are some upsides and downsides to that, but that's just kind of my bent. So for me in the process of, of doing that and looking at the numbers, there's so much that's wrapped up in this conversation. I'm so excited to have it with you, Steve, because I know you really relate on this level, but I think about the difference between intention versus mechanism in life and business. Intention is your commitment. The mechanism is the means by which you plan on achieving that goal or fulfilling that commitment. So let's look at profitability, for example. We can get focused and hung up on talking about fee maxing, cost cutting, 
reducing churn, etc. And those are useful conversations. But that if that conversation is being had in the context or with someone that does not have the intention or the commitment to get profitable, it's noise. It's a complete waste of time. If your goal is to get profitable and you're a smart entrepreneur and you live in America, you know, you're going to figure it out. That's that's my view. So I'm not discounting the numbers and the specifics and the, and the mechanics. There's there's value in that. But for me, it's just it's really opened up my mind's eye to appreciate the power of intention as it relates to thinking about the priority of profit and putting it before growth, not in place of growth, but saying we must be profitable now, not later, not some ambiguous time in the future, not we're staffed for growth and we're going to we're going to get profitable when we hit X, Y, Z goals. That's been the mental shift for me. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that was huge. Greg Crabtree was really refreshing because I love when people have a different spin on things and in the startup world and all this stuff and have a different angle. And he was just like profit at all costs. If you're not profitable, you don't have a business. There's no reason to be putting that off to some future date. Even startups I've seen, they should be able to, you know, be profitable. And yeah, I know there's some exceptions to that. You know, I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think I heard Andy Props on your show. I think it was earlier talking about how everything changed when he got the CFO position. So like we're seeing a correlation there. And what I started to realize was businesses are, it just comes down to numbers, right? And so you've got to be able to look at your numbers and say, okay, I'm paying too much of my labor per the revenue dollar based on other people. And so Greg able to give some benchmarks, like a three to one uh, labor efficiency ratio, which used to make my eyes roll back in my head saying that <laughs> word. But like, now I actually get it. Like for every dollar I spend to pay someone, I need to make. Yeah, dollars. man. You know what I mean? And like simple things like that, like really were profound and like, Hey team, maybe you don't want to tell your team what you pay everyone, but you say, Hey, the industry average is three. We're at two. So we're doing something wrong. We need to become more efficient. Same with management, like five to one management efficiency ratio, just some of those, those key things. And, um, uh, you know, doing the projections out was, was just huge. So, uh, you know, all of that was just so beneficial for me. So let's keep leaning into this conversation about profit versus growth. I just did a podcast with Steve Crossland. I released it. I don't know Steve personally, but I'm very much familiar with this story. Had him on the show. It's the first time that I've ever gotten pushback on a podcast episode. It was related to the fact that some folks felt like Steve's story, which in a nutshell would basically be that he manages 100 units, he has no staff, he does no marketing, he has no office, and he's insanely profitable relative to the 100 doors that he manages. Some people felt like that that model of constraining yourself at 100 doors can be an excuse for not learning how to grow or an enabling factor to pretend like you could grow when you really can't. Honestly, I can kind of I can kind of see that point. At the same time, what is equally, if not 10 times more concerning to me is not prioritizing profit and not putting it first. I know that you mastermind, you network, you work with a lot of hustlers out there. Uh, some of these folks that really do take that balls out growth vision seriously. What are your thoughts on how your, your personal balance of profit versus growth looks like? And are you at all sympathetic to the idea of Let's say it's one of these folks that has, that is really going a capital intensive route, maybe not VC funding, but let's say friends and family, bank loans, et cetera. To what degree are you sympathetic to that narrative? And how do you think that that story relates or doesn't relate to 
Joe Pro- Acme Property Management Company that's managing 200 doors? Well, I'll say a couple of things. First off, in property management, unless you're doing some crazy venture capital deal or something, it's not. I don't see why you can't be profitable from day one. So, you know, it, it's a service-based business. You can, you know, you you could learn as you go. You can start in the trenches and work your way up. So, I don't really see why you can't be profitable at day one. The thing that really jumped out at me, what you said with Steve, is like how people are so quick to jump on other someone else's way of doing business that has absolutely no effect on them. He's perfectly happy living his life that way. Well, who am I to argue with that? <laughs> and he's killing it. He's making a ton of money. So I don't understand. Maybe I'll have to listen to the episode, see if there's other stuff, but I don't understand the opposition to that. If he's making you know a great income working himself and, and not having overhead, I just cannot see an argument against that. Now, that's maybe working for him. I'm really big. I'm not trying to be the richest person. I'm trying to be the happiest and the most free. So that wouldn't work for me personally. I'm big into time freedom. And maybe he has it set up where it's like minimal hours and it's just doing the stuff he likes. And that's that's great. But um, he has no staff. But, so yeah, right. No staff. So, you know, that's not for everybody. But um, I think people are trying to defend low profit and because they they don't have a business that is profitable and there really is no defense for it. I mean, for instance, right now we're projecting a 15% profit margin, which is low for us this year because we're putting money back into the business in form of hiring people with unique ability and spending more on marketing and things like that. So that's okay. I think that's a sm- that's that makes sense, but at the end of the day, our, our ultimate goal is in 2022 to, to manage 3,000 units and have a 30% margin, profit margin. So like, we'll be able to turn some things down and things off and streamline some things by then. But the thing is, we could not do these initiatives and be profitable now, a lot more profitable now. Well, so I, I hear a little contradiction here, though, Steve, because some people are going to say like, well, you're making the excuse. You're staying your staff for growth, et cetera. But the key for me was there was that you're still requiring 15% profitability from the business now while you're making those investments. What's your gut check level? Would you accept somebody else's logic that takes that from 15 down to negative 15? I mean, how much of a profitability bump do you think can be rationalized in the face of ambition for the business? I would. I don't know very many people that are willing to go down that low, big risk takers in this business, but I'm sure they're out there. You know, a 10 or 15 point swing to do an initiative like hire a marketing team or really go big on. So I wouldn't be doing that to anything besides sales and marketing. Like we really want to become a sales and marketing juggernaut. And so we're investing in some tools and some capabilities and all this stuff to really like you put it in a perfect way for me, Jordan. And thank you for this. You're like some businesses just throw money at sales and marketing and hope for the best. Some invest in sales and marketing and really learn it as like almost like opening up maintenance, like another part of your business. And that really a light bulb went on for me because, you know, there's an opportunity there. Number one, because not many people are doing it. Number two, I'm big into just learning these skill sets so we can become disruption proof. You could take that sales and marketing knowledge into any other business, building a team business. And then I don't have to worry about the venture capitalists or whatever. I'll just pivot into another industry because I already know how the game is played. And so I think you have to give yourself a time horizon. Like if I, two years from today, didn't see the growth and was still at 15%, I would, well, I'm not going to technically give up 
but you know, some people might want to say, okay, screw it. I'm going to do lifestyle business. I'm going to turn that off. I'm going to fire this person. I'm going to go back to profitability. But the thing is, I already know we're profitable where I want to be right now. It's just, we're making the, the investment to acquire some new capabilities so that we can grow to a certain level at a, at a already predetermined date. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. So a lot wrapped up in that. I think what you quoted me as saying was sales marketing has to be operationalized and have a level of equivalency with the rest of operations. Otherwise, you're kidding yourself if you're implying that you're going to grow through swiping a credit card and buying leads. If you're serious about growth, you operationalize it as a skill set and as bodies that have responsibilities just like any other department in the organization. In terms of the actual investment in it, the thinking is If we back out sales marketing and the company is an acceptable level of profit, there's some comfort we can take from that because that's not just a raw production operational inefficiency. It's a growth inefficiency that in theory can be turned off. And I I can accept that. I could accept that a business backing out sales marketing that's at 30% profit margin could arguably be growing in a smart way while not sabotaging their business. If your operations is what is driving that low profit, there's you, you don't have anything that is worth scaling. Furthermore, though, that said, if the sales and marketing branch that is really drawing profit down low is effectively just replacing units you're losing, that's where you can get into hot water. The story with churn in this industry can be absolutely brutal. And it was crazy to look in the benchmarking study and see some of the companies that grew the fastest also had the biggest churn issue. I don't know if there's a correlation there. It didn't go in depth enough to study that. But for those players that are justifying low profit because of sales marketing expenditure, watch your churn. Yeah. You know, obstacles are the raw material for success, I've heard it say. And so high churn, you know, I had to make a decision where we have to go to war. We got, I mean, we have to grow not just to be profitable, but to survive. And so I think that's going to set us up and a lot of companies up for a lot more success when things level out in the sales market. So, you know, it's a good place to be to invest in that now and and be ready for that. I love that you're building that powerhouse, though. I completely agree with you. In the same way that cash is is fungible, sales and marketing as an asset is also fungible. The way that you market to owners is the same way that you would market to tenants or to people in a completely different vertical. The universality of communications, of human-to-human connection absolutely transcends any one vertical. And at the end of the day, the best sales and marketing organization wins. Sales and marketing is where the highest level of economic contribution and productivity occurs when it is done right. So if you have your nut tight in terms of having your profit dialed in, then by all means, blow it out with growth. That's what's sexy and exciting to me. You just got to be realistic about as an entrepreneur in light of your goals, in light of your skill set and your risk tolerance, is that the fit for you? I mean, that's really what I've just learned is it's about like, what's the right playbook for the right person as opposed to wanting to genericize and say, no, don't give me the nuance. Don't give me the caveats. Just give me the you know five bullet points of success. You feel me? Right. I feel you a hundred percent. And I think a lot of property management company owners problems, like it was my problem. When I looked at the numbers, it wasn't my expenses. It was my, my revenue. Mm, okay. Tell and, me more. Yeah. People don't want to, it's a, it's a scary subject. Oh, well, I can't charge anymore in my market. And you know, the owners wouldn't pay that. And you know, all this stuff, these stories that I was telling myself, but when face, when looking death of my company in the face in Puerto Vallarta in that beautiful villa, <laughs> I said, I said, okay, we're going to have to figure this out because 
I promised my team a great future to be with me. And so my responsibility is to grow the company and I can't let them down because if I don't grow the company, they don't, I don't fulfill my promise. They don't have a future. So I said, okay, we got to look at this thing. And then I actually ended up finding a new passion with the whole property management game is like, I'm so not interested in competing on price. You know, price is only an issue in the absence of value. And I'm a creator at heart. I'm a songwriter. I love to create. And so like I've, I've, I've found this whole new, you know, paradigm to look at where like, how can I create value? How can I charge more? more? I'm not interested in beating people to the bottom. And there's always going to be a job for someone who can create value at, at any cost because, uh, you know, that's what kind of excites me. Anyone can just drop their prices. So I think the revenue is more the issue. I know there's not a lot of property managers spending a ton on marketing and employees. I mean, would you agree? Absolutely, man. Pick the right constraint to solve for. Don't get to the end of the race and realize you ran to the wrong destination. We're all going to be in the business hustling, grinding, motivated, attacking the day's problems. But what constraint would you rather solve for in light of your goals? Would you rather solve for the constraint of figuring out how to compete on price and lower costs and eke out a living? Or would you rather figure out the constraint of how to get paid more as a byproduct of adding more value to people's lives? Which of those is going to be more profitable, more rewarding, and more sustainable? Exactly. And rewarding, you hit the nail on the head. You know what, What's going to get you out of bed more in the morning? Um, being able to add that value is what's what's working for me. So It's so fulfilling to move up the ladder chain, man. I remember back in the day, starting off my career, doing software demos, being commodified, people asking things like, well, why should I buy you? Sell me, sell me, sell me. You know, and when you're in that commodity position, you have you have brought that to yourself. You have asked somebody else to treat you that way if you have not proactively shaped the narrative from the outset in a different form or fashion. That's been my experience. And when you're on that high value, high authority, fiduciary end of the spectrum, it's just it's so insanely rewarding. And yeah, man, it, that's exactly what gets me up in the morning. Let's talk about some of the other things that support your goals. In a nutshell, Steve, give me the the personal Steve's vision, purpose, and values that even causes you to be running this business. Why not be a beach bum? Why not be a full-time songwriter? Like, Why are you even going through this exercise of running the company? I get out of bed now because I want to create opportunity for my team, number one. I want to have one of the highest paid teams in the industry. I want multiple people making six figures on my team, not because I'm some altruistic guy, but for selfish reasons. Because if I have a team worth that much, then we must be getting some crazy great results for our customers. And it's funny, I talked, I was talking to someone at one of the events recently, and he was actually the opposite. He's like, that's funny you said that. I'm actually like doing Podio and like we hire like interns and nobody gets paid like anything. And I was like, that's totally cool. You know, that's your, your deal. But uh, I'm trying to really create opportunity for people. So I think at this point in my career, that's what really gets me out of bed. Yeah, I do like the business of entrepreneurship and making money. And, you know, uh, learning new capabilities is, is something that gets me out of bed in the morning. I'm not in the grind your eyeballs out crowd. So I'm in this really cool space in my life where I'm interested in achieving an outcome with the least amount of effort possible. So it's a game for me now. It's kind of like taking myself out of the company as much as possible, just working on the high level stuff and giving directions to my team on what I want done and letting them figure out how it should get done and what results or how they're going to achieve the result. I think that's been one of the biggest catalysts for our success over the last year 
is me getting out of the way as the bottleneck for the organization. When I'm there, they can ask me all the questions. They can do everything. I'm actually considering moving my operations manager out of the office now because the team will grow like crazy if you just give them flexibility, give them space to operate, and then make sure they're doing the types of roles that they're best suited for and they get passion from. That's kind of what's exciting me right now, building building a team, basically. I, I'm a people guy. I love people. I love that, man. So you let go of the do more, be more narrative. That's a big one, man. I, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm still struggling with that. That's definitely an ever-present struggle in my life. Conceptually, the contrast between be, do, have versus have, do, be, meaning are you something as a result of what you have done and what you've accomplished and what you possess, or is what you choose to be the thing that drives those results in your life? What is the order of those things is definitely deterministic in your outlook on life, but that temptation of you know, just, just a little more, man, just a couple more hours, you know, I'm just going to get a little bit ahead. And at some point, does the velocity of your success change the amount of value that you should assign to your work? Meaning if my income or my velocity of growth or my velocity of profit was 10 times what it was now, would that mean that I was somehow justified in working as much as I'm working or should I work more or should I work less? I mean, ultimately, Success, the entrepreneurial journey is definitely a part of everybody's identity. It certainly is a part of mine. But what is the relative priority of that versus the rest of life? For me, at some point, you just got to accept the fact that there's nothing I can do within the context of entrepreneurship that is going to override the priorities that I have in other areas of life. And that's that's what I'm trying to stew on right now to just kind of work through that temptation to stay in the office for a couple of more hours and delay seeing my three-year-old for a couple of more hours. It's like, it's, it's an ever-present fight. Totally. It's a struggle, man. And it's a journey. But I love this quote. It's in uh, A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. He talks about you know, what the world doesn't tell you because it doesn't know is that you cannot become successful. You can only be successful. Don't let a mad world tell you that success is anything other than a successful present moment. Dude, dude, dude bro, bro. I read that quote today, man. I read that quote no this way. morning. Yeah, man. Like, like three hours ago. That's crazy. <laughs> That's heavy, man. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fantastic quote because it takes the pressure off because once you get to your goal, like when I get to 3000 units, I'm not going to be any happier than I am today. So I think happiness is the goal and whatever that means for you as far as working longer or shorter hours, you know, you got to figure that out for yourself. And I know there's a season of, of life, but um, just being the type of person that, that you want to be and, you know, showing up each day and, and doing the things that are going to get you to the ultimate goal each day, because it's the journey, not necessarily the destination, right? Absolutely, man. I've heard Sun Tzu quoted as saying, champions win first and then go to battle. Losers go to battle hoping to win. Ooh, I like that, man. <laughs> a lot of different. That's why, that's why we get along, man. We're on the, the same tip with this stuff. You know, I can I can feel people coming from all different kind of places. All this mindset stuff for me, if it results in you running a business that is losing money and you're unhappy, it doesn't mean a whole lot. You know, if it actually empowers you to generate results, then I think it's useful. For me, it's been useful. Let's talk about beyond books. Let's talk a little bit about coaching. What has been your background and experience with? coaching. We work with you on the profit coach side of things. That's been a ton of fun, but I know you've worked for some other organizations. Specifically, I'm thinking about Dan Sullivan's organization. Give me a little bit of background about what that's been like and, and what's kind of your, your take on the value of investing in coaching right now. Yeah. So biggest ROI 
return I've ever had in in my life. Uh, I'm a honk for it. And if people listen to my podcast, they know. But started about two and a half years ago with them. And it just removes you from the business once a quarter. You network with other entrepreneurs. You start thinking in a way that is different, which really makes sense to me. You realize that you don't have to work until your eyeballs bleed. You realize that you actually don't have to do all the stuff you don't like to do, that you're actually uniquely good at a, just a handful of things and that you should spend all your time there. So like my trip right now is that I'm actually a who person, not a how person. So I don't know how to do it very well. Like I don't know how to do all these things very well, but you know what? I know Jordan and I know Profit Coach. I know the people that I need to be around that know how to do things that I don't know how to do. And then I have a team that I've brought together that that can figure out the how. And so I used to beat myself against the head trying to figure out processes and stuff. So like now my life looks like figure out what result I want, write it out on an impact filter from strategic coach, give it to my team, let them figure out how it's going to happen, move on to the next idea. And like, I feel guilty for like that being my life at some times. Cause I'm like, is that a cop out? Like it's a skill because not everyone is out trying to figure out <laughs> how to make the business better and how to improve their, the life of their team. And two, my other unique ability is, is motivating and, and bringing enthusiasm to the team. I think that's our biggest responsibility as a leader is to bring enthusiasm. So enthusiasm is so important. It's almost like the bearing of one spirit and like people resonate with enthusiasm because it's almost like they recognize the sp their spirit in another person, not to get too crazy on you. But the thing with enthusiasm, like yesterday, I felt like crap going to work. I had no motivation. I was second guessing everything I'm doing. I walked through that door, high fiving, like, what's up? We gotta, yeah, let's do this. You know, if you do nothing else as a leader, bringing enthusiasm to the table is so important for just making sure your team stays motivated and stay. So basically my, my other unique ability besides bringing the ideas is the leadership and making sure we have a vision and making sure people stay motivated on that vision. And that's my second. My third is I'm very good at recognizing ability in people. Whenever we hire someone, I give them the talk. I like take them off to the side. And if I say, I hired you because I recognize in you something very special and I'm excited to see what's going to happen for you. And I'm going to do everything I can to make you successful personally and professionally. And we're going to go to war and we're going to like, your life is about to change. And I need you to do everything possible in your power to make me successful. And I promise the same back to you. Let's go to work. I'm good at motivating my team and making them successful because people... That's what gets me out of bed is like, I want to help make my team successful personally and professionally. Like that's what fires me up. It might not work for everyone, but that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, man. I love that. And it keeps coming back to intention for me. It's like, it's like gravity. Intention is not a strategy. It's just reality. Your intention could be that and it will be perceived or your intention could be, oh, my employees are lazy. They need to do what I tell them to do. They don't follow the processes. What I find is that the belief when it comes to staff and people, the belief that the problem is extrinsic and is external oftentimes is the actual problem rather than the thing that I'm assigning the problem to or the person or the attitude. It's like the belief that it's external and that somehow I've got to manipulate or change that person and their attitude. 
as opposed to taking it on myself and just like really digging deep and saying, why am I getting this feedback, this response, this behavior? What is it coming from? How is reality occurring to that person in this moment such that they are reacting that way? Their behavior is a byproduct of their perception, and it's their perception is the level upon which we can have a productive conversation and dialogue to reframe things. And that everything you just talked about, leadership, motivation, I think mean, there's a path to growth, a journey. It sounds really great, but hey, let's be realistic. You just put a burden on yourself. You put a target on your back. If you choose to milk this company and to make it purely a lifestyle business that really isn't going anywhere and it's your personal piggy bank, that is not a growth engine. There's no ladder to climb for anybody with unique ability within that kind of a a flat organization. I'm assuming that's part of the catalyst and motivation for you to double down on sales and marketing. Brother, you really went all out. Like when we had that conversation, I don't know, it was a month, two months ago, and we kind of talked through what you were putting in place. I was a little, I, I was a little surprised, but I, I also knew that like you were going to going to go through with it. So walk me, walk me through what you're doing with this sales and marketing campaign and, and the why behind it. So what I did is I hired a marketing person. Number one, I got the BDM in place. We're bringing on some new, software doing uh, working with HubSpot as far as blogging and some other capabilities there. And I'm just basically going big on the content marketing thing with Marcus Sheridan. You guys brought him into my world. And I dabbled the first year after kind of hearing what he was doing. But this year, we're kind of going all in on it. So that involves, you know, I hired a writer, I hired someone that writes really well. And they write blogs, they also do video uh, they also manage the social media campaign. I'm, I'm going into each avenue and getting some coaching from, uh, you know, Marcus's company on that. Just in what we've been able to learn in like three months, I'm, I wouldn't be able to learn otherwise. And what's funny about their conversation with Profit Coaches, <laughs> I'm, I'm still a relatively new customer to Profit Coach, maybe like six months. It's a new company, right? But when I told you guys that, it was funny. You guys brought so much clarity into like what I could have been thinking about before I made a decision to spend like a hundred grand on all sorts of stuff. You know, I was like, oh yeah, they actually are kind of like my CFO. And like, <laughs> so now I know, oh wait, called Danny and Jordan before I make like big decisions. Cause at least I would have been able to kind of think through some of that. But I think I did make the right decision. I'm a big believer. Everything happens for a reason. And unfortunately with me, and I, it took me in my whole life to learn this is I learn by doing. I don't learn by research. I can't, I, I learn, I have to see what it feels like. <laughs> and that can cost money sometimes, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, uh, but so that's kind of me, you know, and I work with it the best I can. But uh, I'm hoping to learn as much as I can and help bring my knowledge and capabilities to our property management community and help people grow as well. I, I know that there will be some eyes on you with this experiment. You laid a lot of cash down. You made you threw down the gauntlet and you didn't do so after becoming a sales and marketing mastermind genius yourself. You dabbled at first. So you got the vision, you heard the information, you got the vision, the inspiration, you dabbled. And then you said, I'm going to put the cash down as a forcing function to require myself to take this seriously. Working together in that group discussion between me and Danny, we got some clarity on the results that would need to be required in order to justify the investment. When you talk about being hands-off with the business and really trying to build other leaders within the organization, at the same time, contrasting that with this whole concept of sales marketing needing to be operationalized, 
Is this a bigger area of focus for you? Are you on terms of day-to-day areas where you're in the weeds? Did you have to have more of your time sucked into this area of the business, given that it's kind of a new discipline? Yeah, and it was tough for me at first, but you know, I got to be more involved and I'm actually enjoying the process now because I'm learning a lot. But yes, I I I got a lot of clarity actually just recently that if it's not sales and marketing, I shouldn't be messing with it right now. I have an operations team, I have that working well, so I'm really excited to put my whole heart into this. And the thing I realized too is I'm like I'm not going to get to 3000 units doing what I've been doing or doing what everyone else has been doing. I've got to do something differently. And I think a lot of us know just 1% of like sales and marketing capabilities and what, what, what we can do and how we can streamline this and how we can really build a really robust sales and marketing department. And so that's what I'm really excited about right now. And that's what some of these people are helping me do. Real quick on Profit Coach, I got to give you a plug because it's so funny. One of the things that came to mind after I went through the mastermind and profit coach is like not knowing your numbers inside and out is akin to like being like a professional football coach or like not like reviewing tape and not like having like the the data it's impossible to be successful so i would encourage anyone that just looks at a pnl or something to get some assistance from profit coach or someone else in the industry i know andy hired a cfo because that will blow your business up because you're going to find out what's going on you're going to have reality, and I don't like to look at reality either, but it will stare you in the face, and then you'll have to make some decisions. Mm-hmm. And there could be the same decisions you're making now, but doing it from a, a, a position of knowledge and clarity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm with you on that, man. You know, Before we, we go on, I do want to actually plug you. I'm probably going to forget if we keep talking here. Tell me a little bit about the mastermind event that you were hosting in San Diego on a Monday right before NARPM National. I'm going to be there. Pretty sure Danny's going to be there. I know you've got a good group of folks coming. You've been doing, you've been hosting your own mastermind for a while. Now we're doing the in-person event. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So about three years ago, I posted on Listserv, hey, I'm starting a mastermind. If you're interested, answer these six questions, send me the answers, and I'll get back to you. Anyway, I ended up forming, I think it's eight or nine of us. We've been meeting once a month on Google Chat or whatever it is. Every one of us in the mastermind says it changed our business. Like everyone's so grateful to me for starting it. I'm like, hey, like I just started it. You guys, you know, made it great. And like, so it just had such a big impact. And uh, I was sitting in a conference recently. And after you you go to conferences a lot, there's something that additionally can be brought to the table in the form of masterminding. And when you're in person, like when we were in Mexico, you can get a lot more out of a full day of being away from your office because a lot of people are masterminding in their office, right? There's a great quote that says, it's hard to understand a system or fix a system when you're in the system. So like, there's something about getting away and masterminding. So it's a full day event in October, the Monday before NARPM. There's, I think, five spots left. We're capping it at 18 people. But uh, hopefully, maybe you can put a link to the registration page if you're interested. I'm doing it because I needed something new to work on. If my job is to find new ideas, I got to create that environment for myself, first and foremost. Two, your mastermind blew my business up. We had such great results with the one I started online. I'm like, let's just keep moving with this. And so that's kind of uh, a little bit about it. It's it's going to have a hot seat uh, format. 
where we're going to help everyone solve each other's problems, create a real good community of people that are invested in helping everyone else grow, figure out what everyone's ideas are, brainstorm through them and uh, create like a good community through that. So, yeah. Love it. Guys, if you're already going to be in ARPM National, I know some folks are thinking about coming, even if they're not just doing a one day in and out. It's definitely worth thinking about being in that high context environment where there's an opportunity to go deeper, to get past bar talk, how many doors you manage, what are you doing with pet screening, et cetera, to really go deeper in a more of an intimate environment. It's definitely worth thinking about. We're going to link it up. I do want to transition now to the rapid fire section of the interview. I ask every single guest a series of questions. I'm looking for short and sweet answers straight from the gut. And Steve, the first question is this, who do you learn from? I learned from Jim Rohn, Ooh. the godfather. Ooh. If you will change, everything will change for you is the quote that changed my life. I used to party, drink back in the day, quit all that and got my head on straight and went to work. So Jim Rohn, Gary V podcast. I learned from you, Alex. I learned from Brad Larson a lot. Um, strategic coach podcast. Jeez. Dan Sullivan is just so smart, man. He's just like, so on exactly what I'm trying to do like everything he says i resonate with so any of his podcasts oh the joy of procrastination podcast phenomenal podcast it's just two people talking i'm really interested in that type of podcast format where it's like just a conversation and you're just a fly on the wall and these guys just talk about procrastination and how it's actually been this negative term this whole time but it's actually this this spring of creative ideas to where you should just use it as a a way to identify things you can do you know like, oh, I've been procrastinating on this. That should move up to the top of the list. You know what I mean? So it's got a lot of cool concepts in it that I really enjoy. All right. So we got a podcast to check out. Uh, definitely, I can endorse the Dan Sullivan podcast. I like that one. It's short and sweet, pretty meaty. You brought up Jim Rohn. My favorite quote from him is, don't wish it were easier, wish you were better. Don't wish for less problems, wish for more skills. Don't wish for less challenge, wish for more wisdom. Love that guy. Absolutely the godfather. He's he's the guy that like uh, – I, I believe he's the guy that mentored Tony Robbins. Yeah. Crazy. All right. <laughs> Next question is this. Steve, what is the one pervasive belief in our industry that you wish you could transform? That doors matter. Doors lot. are success. That doors are success. I think we need to start shifting to the revenue per door role. And I hear some people say like, you know, it frustrates them. I don't really care when people, people can blow up, say what they want. Like I I don't care what other people say very much and it doesn't like affect me, but I think revenue per door, I, I saw, I think on one of the message boards yesterday talking about his revenue per door, like okay, getting to 250 or something. I'm like, that's great. Like mine's right around 205 right now. It's like, that's not a dirty thing to talk about. You know what I mean? It's like, if, if we're going to be successful, we've got to actually talk about real stuff because I could grow to 3,000. Oh, and I don't know if I preface this, but my goal is to get to 3,000 units and a 30% profit margin. I could get to 3,000 units in a, two years if I drop my prices and just run a horrible business, right? But got to be profitable <laughs> to a certain extent. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's the fantasy, right? Well, I could get to I could get there in two years and then I'd fix it, right? I'd course correct. I'm just going to send 3,000 people a Femax letter and you know solve it that way all right man i'm i'm totally with you on that i love that next question is this steve if you could only take one music album with you to a desert island and that was that was it what would your one music album be bob marley kaya 
Jamming. Jamming. Yeah, buddy. Short, short and sweet. Next question, Steve, why podcast? Why podcast? So what I've learned about podcasting for anybody that's interested, it takes a little bit of time to set up, but there's companies that can help you. Um, you get to reach out to people who you don't know and say, oh, I have a podcast. And then they're like, oh, you know, so you get to meet people. You get to sit and think critically about ideas and you're working on, for instance, like podcast ideas currently, I'll just go to my list of things like, okay, maybe I'm need to, you know, shoot videos on Facebook. I'll seek out someone that's good at shooting videos on Facebook, interview them, and I kill two birds with one stone. So that's another good thing. And then uh, I just like the idea of being a thought leader. It's kind of like a selfish ego thing maybe, but like, I don't know how I'm going to be a thought leader if I don't have a podcast. (laughs) I'm sure there's more than one way to skin that animal, but I don't think of being a thought leader as being selfish at all, right? It serves, it improves the quality of the life of every every person you come into contact with. So 100% with you. Love that answer. Um, Steve, what was the first song that you wrote and recorded that you were truly proud of? The first song I was truly proud of was a song called Wide-Eyed and Beautiful. And I co-wrote it with a friend and it's on Spotify. Go to Steve Welty, Spotify. It's my oldest album, but I'm coming out with a new album right now. I'll be dropping pretty soon. And I'm just having a really good time with songwriting because I believe in the Dan Sullivan approach, which means to make more money, you actually have to work less. So when I create space in my life and I do things that I like and I feed other areas of my life and I try to be well-rounded, then it limits the amount of time I can spend in my business, which means that I actually have to do more high impactful things and I have to actually let other people do them and help them grow. And that's my thesis on business right now. Ooh, constraints, the C word. I absolutely love it, man. All right, man. Second to last question. Steve, what's the last initiative you put in place that meaningfully impacted and increased your revenue per door? Vendor marketing fund. Hands down, it's bringing in a ton of money. Okay, so two, vendor marketing fund. So if you don't start a a maintenance department, you just go to your vendors and you say, hey, you guys are doing great work, but I'm trying to really grow this business. So I want to keep you super busy. I want to blow your business up. But to do that, I got to spend on sales and marketing. And I need you to come with me. Because when I grow 100 houses, you get 100 more toilets to work on. So I need you to put in a certain percentage of whatever you bill, my clients, to the company and we're going to spend it on sales and marketing. I'm going to be fully transparent on what it's spent on. And you're going to have to be able to see over time that this makes sense for you. But if you want to go on that ride with me, this is where we're going. We're going to 3000 units. And so if you want to be on that ride with me, let's do it. Here's the caveat. You can't raise your prices. This is not a markup. So you you can't charge more than you're charging now, but you're going to make up for it in volume and you'll see. And if you don't, then it's just a handshake agreement. You can go elsewhere and not do it. So Let's try that. That's made a lot of money and it's a win-win-win because the owner gets better service because this company, this vendor is now invested in your company wholeheartedly and making sure that they service your clients well. So your clients get better service, your tenants get better service. You actually are now kind of in a partnership. So you actually communicate more. It's funny with vendor issues, 80% of the time, it's because you didn't communicate exactly what you want from your vendor, expect from your vendor. I know because we're guilty of it too. Like 
the vendor didn't do this on the make ready. What, well, did we ever lay out exactly what we wanted them to do? Not just for this job, but like how we work as a company. So now we're bringing them in on a weekly, biweekly basis to talk and strategize. So that's been huge. The other one is charging for walkthroughs. I was one of those people that was like, it won't work in my market. Nobody charges for walkthroughs. My dear friend, Clint Collins, just put it very simply and said, push the button, Steve, charge for walkthroughs and you'll buy a boat and call it walkthrough cash. (laughs) And I said, all right, I'm going to do that. (laughs) And it's the same type of thing. There's value added because now instead of it being a pesky little part of your business, every property management company that that includes them is behind on them. Don't say you're not, you're behind on them. You're not doing them right. They suck. You actually make them a revenue center and clients get this. You make them a revenue center. You actually put focus on them. You do them right and you don't get behind. And the client benefits because the home is more well taken care of and everybody wins. So that's the couple value adds that we've done that have made a big impact. Man, love that answer straight from the gut. Final question, as always, is this. Steve Wealthy, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? I think they're born. I think you've got to have a desire to really make it long-term in entrepreneurship. You can dabble, but I think uh, like going to work for someone was just never long-term was just never right for me. So I can only speak from experience. Like obviously I had to have jobs growing up, but I knew from the beginning I'd be my own boss. So I would say born. Love it. Everybody's got a unique take. That is Steve Wealthy's. Steve, if folks want to connect with you, learn a little bit more about your business, what's the best place for them to go? Yeah, you can email me any questions or whatever if you want to connect, steve at goodlifemgmt.com. And then if you're interested in that mastermind event... We're going to link it up. Perfect. Put the link in there. Love to connect with you there. And we're going to try to blow everyone's business up and uh, have fun doing it. All right, Steve. We'll see you in San Diego. Thanks again for coming on. Right on. Thanks so much, Jordan. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.